welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and Focuswire's podcast about innovators in travel and transportation. Today we're joined by Brett Tolman, the CEO of the Travel Corporation, a travel holding company with 25 brands including Trafalgar, Kentucky, Haggis Adventures, and many more. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thank you, David. Great to be with you. So we like to start every interview off the same way, which is for us to ask you how you got here. Absolutely. So very lucky to have been the progeny of an incredible family. We are a family-owned and run business that's uh, been around for a hundred years this year. Started by my grandfather in 1920 in South Africa. And our family subsequently moved during apartheid to London, actually, back in the 70s. And I was very fortunate to have grown up in South Africa and then had English boarding school education and then went to Cornell University for hotel administration. My family has been in the hotel business all of their lives, obviously, but we've also expanded since we moved to Europe with tour operations, river cruising, and so forth. And my father's really built this business. I say uh, I come from lucky sperm in that sense, not having founded this company, but uh, it's been an incredible journey. I've been working over 40 years with my parents. I really grew up in the hotel business. I was in the, ho- in the kitchen since I was five years old. So I've loved this business from the beginning. And despite being lucky sperm, I've always considered myself that I got to earn the job. So I grew up working every role I could in the hotels throughout the travel business because I've always driven myself to want to understand you know, how the job needs to get done. And if I'm going to be leading it and giving directions to people, um, I wanted to make sure I've earned myself in the role. So that said, people could certainly say that's not true. And I appreciate that very much. But it's an amazing business. And actually, we're up to 40 brands these days. And uh, we're a very passionate family in terms of how we run the business. But as I say, I try to bring professionalism to the job every day. And appreciate that uh, it's not a family business in the sense that focus primarily on leisure. People save their hard-earned monies to go on holiday. And it's very incumbent on us to ensure they get great value, great service, and great experiences. And the Travel Corporation, or TTC as I like to call it today, is renowned for the amazing service that we do provide, which I'm sure we'll get into on this conversation. Thanks ever so much, Brent. Thanks for joining us. And we had uh, there's so much to kind of dive into here a little bit when we, we had tobias from hrs on uh, uh, earlier on in uh, in, tw- in 2020 and he was in the same kind of same kind of situation in that he took over from his father it was a family business that his that his dad had created in the early 70s and i suppose one thing i'm i'm really interested to ask you is how do you kind of for someone who takes over a family business, how do you evaluate a, about how you are going to run it and what, 
and how it was being run before and what you want to change and what you want to leave. I mean, because obviously there's stuff around legacy and there's culture and all those kind of things, but you obviously want to put your stamp on it. So how do you get started with that kind of dilemma? So going back a few years, this company was really built, you know, up from the bootstraps by my father and a legendary guy in the business called Mike Ness, who my father met in Australia, actually, when he was running one of our companies, literally in reservations, and he brought him up through the business. <clears throat> and Mike had a view that you, as I think it's an old English term, you know, stack them high and sell them cheap. And he ran this company yep. very hard. And it was always, how can we cut? How can we save? He didn't believe in human resources. And he was quite something because he built this company with my father. And you know, we've always acquired companies over time. They were largely distressed, paid very little for them, brought in our ethos, our management style, and so forth. And we've seen so many of these companies grow into the companies they are today. Insight Vacations, Uniworld, we bought for almost nothing. And Kentucky as well, you know, that was started by uh, John Anderson in, out of New Zealand and Australia in 62. We acquired it in 1989 when they couldn't do a management buyout. Uh, actually, one of the people who's still with us after about 30 plus years, a guy by the name of Dave Hosking out of New Zealand, has really become my right hand and is an essential part of our business today. But Back then, it was certainly very difficult and very different runs. So to come back to your question, when I came in, I've never really looked for a legacy. That's really my father. But for me, the stamp I wanted to bring was more of a human touch to the business, appreciating when I stepped in in 2010 as chief executive that you know the world today is so different with the millennials and X-Gen and so forth that you're employing. You've got to be more engaging. You've got to be more collaborative. You've got to have a more open environment in your companies. And that's something I believe I brought to the group in terms of the stamp is a more emotional intelligence and greater sensitivity to how you become a great employer, which is what drives me. Uh, Red Carnation Hotels, we just opened our 18th property. You can see a mm. photograph of our lobby here at Kija in uh, the heart of the Okavango Delta in Botswana was rated the second best company to work for by the London Times the last couple of years in the UK. So we really work hard at you know, ensuring a wonderful ethos and core values and beliefs that I brought to the company since I started. And that, I suppose, would be an area I'm particularly proud of. And uh, obviously, with the challenging year in travel and tourism, we've certainly worked hard to stay engaged with our people and it's something that I think constantly evolves. And then, you know, trying to manage the business as consumer behavior changes. We've yeah. certainly, you know, challenged ourselves. I hate the word legacy business, but I fully embrace that at 100 years old, we are a legacy company. And yeah. what keeps me up at night is how do we ensure we're around for the next 100 years? Because I don't want my legacy as the third generation in the company to be the one that fucked it up. And lost <laughs> business because we didn't adapt quickly enough to, you know, being a more B2C digitally oriented company. And so our technology is never good enough, but I spent probably 30 or 40% of my time on technology because I, mm. I so appreciate and always reading and following consumer trends and 
where the industry is going, that we are very much channel agnostic. I don't care if a booking comes from a travel advisor or a travel agent or direct, but we just want to need enough business to feed the beast. And uh, it is so important, obviously, watch consumer behavior because certainly this year in particular, one's seen how much more digitally savvy people are. One has to have the tools and technology. It's got to be a frictionless experience. And so you know, I think it's so important for any chief executive to ensure they do understand consumer trends and they have the technology, the service, and all the tools necessary to engage with and service customers however they want it done. I, I, I'm interested, you said when you were giving us your answer to the first question, you said you did a lot of those jobs when you were younger. Um, would that be correct in saying then that you know you weren't put off getting into the kind of the travel and tourism business by having to do some of those other jobs when you were a, either a kid or a, a, a young man? Absolutely, I love it. I really do. I remember when I was seven years old in Johannesburg, running around and being a stupid kid. You shouldn't run in the kitchens, and I bumped into someone who was carrying this huge pot of boiling water, and it got poured over me. Um, oh dear. So, you know, you have those lessons or when I was at Cornell, I, I was frustrated by the education part. You'd first eight o'clock every morning, five days a week, you had food chemistry, which was learning the science behind, you know, how a hollandaise store stays together or what's the science behind how you make us hollandaise come back together if it breaks. And I just hated that stuff. But I was driven by wanting to cook and get my hands dirty. So I became the first teaching assistant um, at Cornell. We had an operating hotel and restaurant where uh, guests to the campus, parents visiting and so forth would stay. And we ran the restaurant at dinner. And so students would have, it was HA301, would have to work in the restaurant uh, once a week. And you would start at two o'clock and go till eight sorry, 10 o'clock, and from two to six, you would prep what the menu was for the week. Someone was the restaurant manager, put the menu yeah. together, then you had people working the cold line and so forth. And so after doing it, I said, boy, I love this. I started baking when I was 10, so I suggested that I become the teaching assistant for the pastry side. And I loved it, and you'd make six, eight desserts a day with people. You had to make some bread and ice cream, and just bringing that group together, bonding, making them a team, and then obviously having to achieve those goals by 7 p.m. when the restaurant opened, and then breaking down at 10 o'clock. I loved that side of it, and getting your hands dirty and so forth. So I've always sounds, enjoyed all yeah, It of sounds it. like you've got a good grounding in some of the mechanics of how things work by you know, getting your hands dirty, literally and figuratively, then. Absolutely. And then moving into the travel and tourism business later, you know, I learned from a, the gentleman who ran Gap at the time, the clothing company, where he said in an article that he used to sit close to the uh, changing rooms in a Gap store and listen to the consumer as to, you know, what they thought of the latest sweaters, how the stuff fitted and so forth. And then he applied that when he went to J. Crew, And I always listened to that and I thought that was fantastic and how do I bring that to our business and again my predecessor never went on any of our trips he never really wanted to and he never therefore encouraged our leadership team to do the same and when I started I said I'm going to go out on these trips I want our people to see that 
I'm enjoying these holidays, that I need to understand how well are we walking the talk or delivering on what we're promising. And then I enforced all of our management to take a holiday with us every year. I've taken my family and kids on these holidays with us. And I think that also you know, proved to our team that this is how the company's changing. And then we brought in a tagline called Driven by Service, which I adapted from Zappos, which is, you know, that that is the point of difference that we have with our company, that, you know, there's great competitors in travel and tourism. But one thing we wanted to be proud of as a family-owned business was that we deliver the best service. And since, you know, in the last 10 years, we've brought in incredible trainers. We hired the first trainer from Virgin Atlantic who trained their flight crews. Uh, and that lady has been with us now for the last eight years, training all of our travel directors on the road. And we take them out for a week where they sit, what we call walking in our customer's shoes. And they sit as customers on our coaches for a week and get to see how travel directors talk. And, you know, what you don't want when you're getting on board the coach first thing and you want to get a little rest is someone talking in your ear all the time. And so you teach them sensitivity by understanding what it's like to be a customer on the receiving end. And then people and cultures, we call our HR teams today. I'm a huge believer in that. And we work so hard to ensure that we can be proud of what our ethics are, what our ethos is, what our ERGs are, employee resource groups as they're called, especially in these times with the issue around black and indigenous people or BIPOC and what's happened with Black Lives Matter this year. It's something we've worked on for several years and I challenge ourselves to make sure, you know, that our diversity, inclusion and equality is as good as it can be and that we are walking the talk in that regards, that men and women are paid the same, that we're doing more to employ Indigenous people in countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, where we uh, have been for many years, or that we're reaching out to members of the Black communities close to our office in Los Angeles and Inglewood and Compton and working to employ more of them. Because when you see our demographic in Los Angeles, for example, where we have a large contact center for our US businesses, we don't employ enough people of color. So I've challenged our team this year to do that. And we've made some good progress. Brett, I, I think you, you brought up several interesting things here. Um, you mentioned kind of millennials and, and, and being a legacy business as you defined it, even though you don't like to you know, think of yourself like that. And I recognize that some of your brands actually do appeal to younger people. I mentioned Haggis tours. I think I've been on a Haggis tour up into uh, in the Scottish Highlands, if I'm not mistaken. But um, and those aren't obviously necessarily for old people. But, you know, Thomas Cook went bankrupt a year ago. Clearly, there's some uh, tendencies around like uh, younger generations moving away from package tours. How have you thought about how to engage uh, and adapt to that next generation? So, you know, Kentucky, as I mentioned, has been in the family for many years. And it's fantastic because we're learning through the younger audience behavior changes, how we need to adapt our business going forward. So, for example, 10 years ago, we started bringing influencers into how we told our stories. Um, we've seen a dramatic change in behavior in the last five years. We're in our biggest source market for Kentucky, Australia since that's where the brand started and is really a household name there. We've seen people move away from booking through travel agencies dramatically in terms of how much that business has dropped off. So we've been challenged to find new ways and new channels to engage with them, be it Reddit, Pinterest, TikTok, 
and so forth. And we keep trialing that. And then on the experience or the product side, we've certainly adapted dramatically in the last several years. So, you know, 10 years ago, Kentucky was very much a European driven business, 50 people on a modern motor coach. And since then we've expanded to just about every destination in the world. So in Asia, you know, you travel on much different transportation, smaller groups. Uh, more recently, we've, we've just brought out a new series of experiences called Detour, D-E-T-O-U-R. And so far we have 12 around the world. And these have been designed specifically for the OTAs who, you know, do not sell multi-day tours. They don't sell anything online that's longer than four days in duration. And our best-selling trips, again, especially out of the South Pacific, are 30-day trips. So these are all three- and four-day trips. We now sell them on Airbnb. <clears throat> we have them on Viator and TripAdvisor. And these are you know, very immersive, short, go and do truffle hunting in Italy, for example. Or we have a great new trip we started in the UK this year, which is a four-day wellness retreat with a vegan chef. And you learn how to do surfing. And we have different yoga staying in you know, very cool tents and yurts and so forth. So we've really adapted uh, how Kentucky operates. We have new train trips that go from London to Berlin. And amazing, these uh, itineraries that we launched this year, where in London you will meet with a woman who used to be homeless, and she will take you in the back streets of London and educate you on what it was like to be a homeless person. Ten years ago, when we started in Amsterdam, we would go to a strip club. Now you have the choice of going to a strip club or we will take you to a center where they are rehabilitating people who used to be in the sex trade. And you can learn from these young women and men what it was like to work in the sex trade. In Berlin, you get to do a walking tour of Berlin with a young Syrian refugee who tells you his story of what it was like landing in Lesbos and the first thing they wanted to know where just an hour ago he was drowning and the first thing they wanted to see is not, are you okay, can we help you, but where's your passport? And then he tells you his story, which is so moving as you navigate the streets of Berlin. So those are examples of, you know, how we've adapted who Kentucky is for the changing audience today. I'm interested, if I can, Brett, around, you know, how have you built a management team around you that either comes up with these ideas and, or is it, are you very much involved in this kind of, kind of strategy or have you just managed to bring in some just really smart and creative people in other words what's your kind of style as a ceo for you know taking a business forward and being let's i think it's fair to say very progressive my father criticizes me sometimes for being too much of a micromanager so i i do listen and i try to adapt that but frankly it's a bit of both i am involved in the process but it's more to just orchestrate, ensure they have the resources they need in order to drive these things forwards. But if you take the examples that I've just given, it's been a collective, collaborative effort. A few years ago, we were looking for someone new to drive our experiences. And my colleague, Jonathan Raggett, who runs Red Carnation, recommended a young woman who left Red Carnation and moved over to Hyatt when they opened their Andaz uh, brand. And so we approached her, she came back, and she's really driven a lot of this re, 
imagination of Kentucky's experiences and her working with our head of operations for Kentucky in Europe that's based in Bromley, just outside London, who's a 50-year-old guy from Australia. Together, they've created and they found a lot of these people you know, to do that. And even Dave Hosking, who's now 64, living in Sydney, is involved as well. So we use the knowledge of his 40 years involved with Kentucky to make sure that these experiences that we're bringing to market are still profitable, have a reasonable margin. So I would say, you know, it's, it's a collective collaborative effort and I like to ensure just the right people are involved and we're sharing ideas and we challenge each other's. One of my views as I've learned over time is not to be the smartest person in the room. So that's certainly my philosophy, but to make sure the right people are at the table, they have the resources they need, when I need to be involved, I'll dive in, I'll kick ass, I'll criticize, I'll do this, or I'll encourage and be very positive. So it's you know different flavors depending on the day, but it's an interesting balancing act always. Yeah, so actually kind of along those lines, I'm curious, um, you've got all these people around you, you've got 40 brands, some like you said you bought, some like with Detour, you're starting out of existing brands. Um, what is the North Star? What's the through line between these? All of them seem to be in some degree of, uh, you know, curated tours. Uh, you know, I don't see you starting a, an online travel agency, for example. But um, so, but you do have hotels and river cruises and you know safaris and stuff like that. How do you view your expansion strategy? What like when you look at a, a an opportunity and go, you know, should we buy this or should we not? What do you say? Oh, this isn't really us. Um, or or how do you figure that out? So, you know, history has been very opportunistic, not strategic. Um, but if you take each business, for example, Red Carnation, we just opened Botswana because it was a lifelong dream of my parents to create the ultimate luxury safari lodge. And they had one back in the 70s when we lived in South Africa. So that's one kind of story. We're opening hotels in Edinburgh and Dublin over the next three years. Dublin, we saw as a strategic opportunity and the right uh, property came up. Uh, Edinburgh, again, it runs one of the highest occupancies in Europe. So, and that's kind of the end of it in our view that, you know, we're going to end it or stop at 20 hotels. River cruising, when Uniworld came up for sale in uh, 2005, it was a distress sale and we picked it up for the whole company for less than the price of what it would cost to build one new ship today. And we got an office building in it. So that was an incredible acquisition that my father did. Um, at this point, we're not really looking to acquire anything else. I believe there's organic growth opportunities in all of our brands, but if, and when something comes up, you know, we'll certainly look at it. Uh, and it's, you know, does it make sense? You know, I've, I've looked often at investing in some technology companies. If it can leapfrog, you know, where the technology is, we participate in something called the World Tourism Forum of Lucerne, WTFL, and obviously what uh, is not what it stands for. Um, and there, they it's great because they bring in people from the education industry of travel and tourism. They bring people in from governments and they bring people in from industry and then they bring various startups in as well. We've met some amazing companies through that and we support 
uh, as a sponsor, one of them, which is around transactions and also the destinations. And so there, for example, I met two young women that started a food waste business in Switzerland, which we've now adapted to our hotels, where you put a computer over the garbage cans and it tracks everything that gets thrown away. So you can then analyze, you know, we're throwing all this bread away, so let's not do a bread basket, but just offer people a piece of bread or we're throwing so much butter away. And we've reduced food waste substantially, which from an environmental perspective is something I'm very passionate about and we're very driven by as well. And I think that's important as well as an employer because obviously the younger generations today want to work with companies that have the right footprint and the right approach to yeah. uh, ethos. I, I'm interested. It sounds like you've been very lucky. I know that you know, there's obviously a, a lot of smarts and <laughs> clever strategy goes into acquiring companies, but you know, equally you've been lucky with some of the ones that you've got. What would you say have been some of the, the hardest things that you've had to do in your time at the, at the head of the company that have actually been God, why, why on earth did we go down this road this is a pain in the ass so a couple of recent acquisitions i've been involved in weren't particularly successful so those haven't been uh, particularly good but that said we have turned around two of those businesses dramatically since we first acquired them one called brenda vacations in the u.s that we acquired in 2006 and then a company called Adventure World Travel in Australia, New Zealand, yeah. that we acquired a few years ago. Um, you guys don't want to talk about this year, right? No, no, no. We're more interested in kind of kind of your story. What was it that went wrong with those then? If you if you're able to say, or what was what was the particular challenge about those acquisitions that you had to apply your kind of turnaround skills to? I take no credit for either of them. But uh, in the first case with Brendan, when we bought it, the company did literally everything but air and ocean cruise. So they sold FIT, river cruise, guided, and so forth. And then the company broke even in the year we acquired it. And then subsequently, it started losing significant money. And so we kept trying to rationalize the business down. And my father's always warned us that you know, you try to, you can rationalize a business into non-existence when you try to cut back on the service or you drop your price or you cut this and that. And you know, there's so many companies that no longer exist because of that. So I've certainly grown up being very sensitive to it. But so over the next period, as we try to reduce the footprint that Brendan had, we kept losing money. And then actually my, my cousin Gavin, who runs Trafalgar and Cost Saver came in and he took it over. And they really revised the focus just to Scotland and Ireland. And basically we say anything with anywhere in the world where people wear a kilt, we're specialists at. And so all we do is Scotland and Ireland and the company made significant profit last year. In the case of Adventure World, I made the mistake there of putting in place someone from Kentucky actually, who was looking to move on. Some of the leadership team in the business said she really wasn't right and I didn't listen to them. And she totally screwed up the business after we took it over. And she went with the consumer-only approach, pissed off all of our agency partners in Australia, and the business really started struggling. And then we brought someone else in, and Dave Hosking really drove this. I give him full credit for it. And we've really turned the business around with, again, just really focusing on a B2B with a small B2C strategy and uh, just bringing in some really passionate, driven people. 
I'm, I'm interested you mentioned your cousin there. You talked about your father. Forgive me. Your father is still alive. You're 90 correct? years old, still works seven days a week in the business. Sharpest mind. Okay, so you've, you've, your father's still in the business. You've got a cousin there. What are, what are family get-togethers like? Social family get-togethers like? You don't talk about the business, really, do you? You ask my kids. That's all we talk about. But I say <laughs> we, are, we are so passionate about it. We love this business. And uh, you know, we do talk about recipes. We have a family call every week. You know, being we are spread around the world and we all talk about what we're cooking tonight. It's always on mm-hmm. Saturdays and you know, we're always talking about what's happening. So-and-so said this. This is some of the guest comments we had from one of our hotels. My mom's 87 and she still runs Red Carnation day to day. She's so loved in the company. She chooses a Christmas present every year for every member of Red Carnation and Uniworld. It's all, but she keeps a track of everything and it's based on, you know, the role you play, what she gave you last year. And it's so meaningful for the company and the employees to know that, you know, the ownership cares that much to provide a personally chosen gift. In Red Carnation, she tries to do every uh, afternoon tea that we host for our employees and give the, the uh, gifts away in person. You know, so those kind of things, I think, are very meaningful. It's, it's interesting, though, because, you know, you've got your weekly recipe chat and all that kind of stuff but you are family but you are also a business of which you sit at the top is there a is there a often a moment where everyone kind of like stands back and says okay yeah well brett's in charge with we need him to let we need to let him make the decision rather than us all kind of getting in his ear about how we think it should be done or is it much more business-like in terms of decisions or you know i'm picturing like a, a long table at christmas with everyone fighting and throwing mince pies at each other because they agree or disagree over something it doesn't happen at the christmas at the uh, dinner table but you know certainly it happens during the year when you've got a lot of passionate people with a lot of opinions yeah. but one thing my parents always taught us was you know be respectful of each other and my father has this great expression we actually made some silver ones called a matchbox okay theory and that is if you take one match out of a box it's very easy to break it but if you take all the matches and you can't break them and he says as long as you guys stay united you won't fuck this up and we've all learned from that so we are respectful of each other we all have a role to play in the business and you know i try to make sure as the person at the top, that everyone's always got the recognition, they've always got an important role, even as the next generation comes up. So for my older sister, Tony, who, for example, designed Kidra and does all of our ships, she has two children in the business. One works in sales at Red Carnation, the other's our global creative director. He works with me on a lot of videos, websites like ttc.com and our nonprofit treadripe.org foundation website. My three children have no desire to enter the business. I travel about 250 days a year away from home. They see how hard I work. And so far, none of them have any interest in applying themselves. So it is a question mark, you know, what happens with the next generation? But I'm only 59, so I'm not worried about going anywhere soon. And I hope over time, as they grow up, one of them will be interested in going into the business. Since I was five, I always wanted to work with my parents and be in the hotel business. So... Um, but I, I appreciate it's very different today. And I, I heard uh, Francis Ford Coppola once speak at an event, and he said, you know, with your children, 
just make sure as a parent, your responsibility is to see that they do what they love as a career. And I always remembered that because I think it's so important that all of us do what we love. And so I don't want to force my children to be in this business because it takes a huge amount of work and dedication, you know, to run a business and travel and tourism because it is so much about people. I think that's a good segue into my, what will probably be our last question here. You know, what's the future uh, for, for the, the company? And, you know, uh, clearly the, um, um, the uh, succession, line of succession is not fully clear yet. But uh, other than that, when it comes to uh, what types of, you know, I'd love it if you can, you know, you got, you got river cruises, you've got, you know, safaris, you've got, you know, kind of youth bus travel that you're expanding on now. What do you see the next five to 10 years? Like what kind of companies would you want to buy or start if you had all the resources in the world? Definitely not an airline because they say how to be a billion, <laughs> how to be a millionaire is to start, start as, as a billionaire by an airline. You've heard that one. Yeah. Cushion cruising is to, you know, there's, so many very capable competitors in that space and it's just too much money because you know we like to operate as i said earlier without any debt so when we built kijra for example we used our own profits whenever we buy a hotel and renovate a hotel build a hotel we use our own money so as i said earlier with 40 brands i'm a more conservative person than my father so i have no interest in acquiring anything right now I think that every one of our businesses has an opportunity to take more market share, to grow its business. So we need to keep investing in technology, as I mentioned earlier, because that's so important for today and tomorrow. We need to keep investing in our travel trade partners because we do want to be a great partner to travel agents, appreciating many people are still going to buy their holidays through travel advisors. And it's just staying the course of continuing to innovate watching how consumers change their behavior and making sure Trafalgar, Uniworld, Inside Vacations, Luxury Gold do have the experiences, the destinations, and the price points that people will buy. So, you know, I think time will tell, but I believe we, we've always been known for great innovation. And that's why I want to keep investing and focusing our time is innovating within the 40 brands we have. And I don't want to be like a, a kid at Christmas where you open your present and you say, that's great. Now, where's the next present? So along the same lines, you know, with 40 brands, we have so much to do just within that group. And it takes a lot of investment in technology, renovation. So we've got plenty to do, I think, within our fantastic group of brands today. And one last question that came up to me as you mentioned how many brands you have. Um, I... Uh... I have, you know, I'm the executive chairman of Mosio, but I have another business as well. And I sometimes find myself having trouble kind of switching switch the mental switching costs between going between those two. Oh. You've got 40. <laughs> um, the, how do you figure out like how you contribute, uh, you know, to each one of these? And like, do you have any sort of schedule to, to manage it on Mondays? We do cruise businesses on Tuesdays. We do tours, uh, tours business or how do you, what is that organizing principle? I come in and out, you know, as needed. Some brands, you know, in X period are doing great. So just stay out of the way and let them get on with it. But there's always opportunities or there's issues. And that's why I spend my time. Uh, my assistant, you know, we have an executive committee call every two weeks. I have 45 direct reports, which is crazy, obviously too many, but 
It does allow me to stay in touch with them. I schedule a call at least once a month with each of them. If we've got a problem in one of the brands, then we'll have as many calls in a week as necessary. But I work my schedule from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day when I'm here in Los Angeles. You know, because when you wake up in the morning, you're eight or nine or 10 hours behind London, Europe, South Africa, wherever it might be. And I'm also accessible 24 seven. So people know if there's an issue to reach out to me, I was just on a call with our CTO, we had a problem with one of our booking engines on an iOS behavior issue on our direct booking engine that we're working on fixing. So people know they can come to me at any time. And it is just, you know, juggling these balls based on where the need or opportunity is. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Brett. I, I think we we really enjoyed that. And it's been a fascinating look into, uh, into your uh, corporation. So uh, that's all for today, folks. Um, this has been uh, FocusWire and Mozio's podcast, How I Got Here, our weekly dive into innovators in travel and transportation. So thank you very much for your time today, Brett. You're so welcome, guys. I really enjoyed it. And I wish you all the best over the holidays and throughout 2021. Cool. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, tune in weekly and please follow us on Spotify and, uh, and all the necessary, uh, the podcast channels. Um, and thank you very much again, Brett. Um, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.